0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonprofit, nonpartisan institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. And in that spirit, Uh, Today, we begin our special series on the constitutional legacy of the Civil War and Reconstruction in honor of the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. We examine the life of one of America's most influential abolitionists, orators, writers, and statesmen, Frederick Douglass, and his vision of the Constitution and how he transformed our understanding of constitutional equality, joining us to discuss Douglas and his constitutional legacy are two of America's leading historians on Douglas and the Civil War era. David Blight is class of 1954 professor of American history at Yale. As the foremost scholar on um, Frederick Douglass, uh, Blight has written extensively, and his newest book, a magisterial biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, will be released on October 2nd. I know we the people will be waiting for it avidly. And we are also so honored to have Dr. Noelle Trent, Director of Interpretations, Collection, and Education at the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. Trent earned her doctorate in American history at Howard University, and her dissertation, Frederick Douglass and the Making of American Exceptionalism, is being expanded into a book. David and Noelle, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you, Jeffrey.
2: Good to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: It's wonderful to begin this important conversation. Let's begin with this remarkable evolution that Douglass had. He began by insisting that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, and he changed his mind and came to conclude that it was not. David, tell us about that evolution. Why did he initially think it was a pro-slavery document, and what changed his mind?
1: Well, Douglass began his public speaking career as a garrisonian, part of the group of abolitionists, Uh, from New England primarily, who were followers of William Lloyd Garrison. And one of Garrison's principal uh, tenets uh, or strategies was to argue that the Constitution was complicitous with slavery, that it was even, as Garrison once put it, a covenant with death, and that uh, the Constitution could not itself be used as a weapon against slavery. Uh, And so Douglass, at the mere age of 20, 21, 22. When he's discovered by the Garrisonians, and then when he goes out on the circuit as a speaker at the tender age of 23 in the early 1940s, uh, he argued this case. He argued many other uh, parts of Garrison strategy, but the idea here was that the Constitution was steeped in uh, pro-slavery doctrine. That even though it didn't, it never used the word slavery, um, it talked about servants. It had the three-fifths compromise. It had many other elements that were um, directly complicitous with extending the life of slavery, and therefore that document was not useful to abolitionism and indeed was a deterrent to it. Uh, that's how Douglas begins his public speaking career, and even as a writer, uh, that uh, will begin to slowly erode as he ventures off to Great Britain and uh, Ireland and Scotland in 1845 to 47. And when Douglas returned in 1847, he's a very angry young black man who had experienced a whole new kind of race relations in the British Isles. He had been treated uh, with only occasional forms of racism while he was in Britain, And he began to be much more of an independent thinker. And by the time he returned in 1847 and then in 48, when he founds his own newspaper out in Rochester, New York, he slowly but surely begins to uh, change his mind on the Constitution. And that change came about in part because of the influence of the New York abolitionist, Garrett Smith, and Garrett Smith's circle of... uh, anti-slavery followers across the state of New York, and here the argument was that the Constitution could indeed be used to fight slavery, whether that was the use of parts of the Bill of Rights or whether that was the idea of the um, assertion in the Constitution that the federal government must ensure a Republican form of government. Um, In other words, abolitionists came to to try to find elements of the Constitution that spoke to the natural rights tradition. And in effect, what Douglas does, it takes he doesn't do it overnight. It takes him three, four years of arguing about this and struggling with it uh, to come to the conclusion that he would rather have the Constitution on his side than always against him. And by 1851-52 he comes out for what was then known as the anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. And it's extremely important in his own development. In fact, it's very important in the development of the political anti-slavery movement because now this fuels uh, the idea of using the political system to fight slavery, using the law, using political parties using political persuasion, using the moral elements of the Constitution uh, to argue against slavery. Uh, one could say Douglas though, was always prepared for this to some degree because he was always a believer in what the 18th and 19th century would call the natural rights tradition.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Uh, Noel, I... Uh, talked recently to Dan Porterfield, the head of the Aspen Institute, who has written uh, an essay saying that when Douglas came to believe that the Constitution included him, that helped define who he was as a person. So tell us more about the evolution David has just described. When Douglas thought the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, on what grounds did he criticize slavery? And once he concluded that the Constitution challenged slavery, in what ways did he deploy it?
2: Well you know, I think what's important to keep in mind is that you know he, Douglas is always approaching um abolition from it's a moral wrong it, it's it 's a violation uh, enslaved people are human beings should be treated as such, they should be entitled to rights, and whether or not the Constitution is the tool in making that argument is where that that shifts for him um, and so I think the essence of his fight against this horrible institution remains the same. The passion remains the same. How this uh, document, this founding document, is used as a tool in that argument shifts. Um, And I think some of that is him coming into his own intellectual maturity. Um, Garrison, he read uh, The Liberator for years. He's a follower of Garrison. And so in some ways, he's supporting this moral suasion argument. And that um, really uh, demonstrated Um, in, I think it's 1843 or so, um, at a conference where um, Henry Highland Garnett is uh, there and he makes his Let Your Motto Be Resistance speech, and he basically says to enslaved people that, hey, you know, there's more of us than there are of them. You should take up arms and defend yourself because it's better to get it all over in one bloody mass than to continue this uh, horrible institution. And it goes to a vote. Now, this is not like a major vote that there's any real teeth to it, but there was a tie, and Douglas was the tiebreaker. And at the time, he is aligned with Garrison and says, you know what, I can't support this. I don't believe in violence in that way. Um, So he still doesn't believe in violence being the solution for the issue of slavery. And so when um, he's invited to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania um, by John Brown to participate in the Harper's Ferry uh, raid. You know, Douglas says, mm, you know what, I'm not, this doesn't make sense. There's a lot of civilians, that sort of violence I'm not for. But at that point, he also believes in the Constitution, um, and he believes in the principles of the Constitution, not a literal translation of it, but the spirit and intent of it. And the issues that he has is not in the document itself. It is in men's interpretation and the flaws of that interpretation. I think that's really the essence of the shift that we're looking at.
0: Thanks. Many many thanks for that. And of course, I'll ask about uh, that changed interpretation and the Dred Scott decision in a moment. But before we get to Dred Scott, David, I want to ask you What other things, uh, Douglas, changed his mind about? You talk in your book about how he endorsed the 1856 Republican Party platform, the first uh, platform of the Republican Party. By the fall of 1857, he changed his tune and charged the Republicans with culpable imbecility and narrow contracted conservatism. Tell us about that change and any other relevant (laughs) pre-Civil War changes.
1: Yeah, well, that particular moment is interesting uh, because it is the first time the Republicans run someone for president, Um, John C. Fremont, and Douglass was very much enthusiastic and hopeful about this new Republican Party by 1854, 55, 56, uh, largely because he began to see how much Southerners, white Southerners, felt threatened by the Republican Party, and he wanted a new political movement that would threaten the South. But it also became a common move for him. He would support the Republicans in presidential years, and then in off-year elections, midterms, and so forth, he would go back to supporting what was known then as the Radical Abolition Party, which was Garrett Smith's party. Even before that, back in... uh, um, but, well, 1850, 1852, uh, Douglass tended to support the Free Soil Party, which was a kind of a forerunner of the Republican Party. The Free Soil Party stood for the, the staunch, uh, um, as best they could, stopping the expansion in any way of slavery into the Western territories. But this is a, an incredibly fertile and transforming period of Douglass' life. Uh, And In my book, I show both how much he transformed intellectually and strategically between the late 40s and mid-50s, but also how he went through a terrible emotional breakdown in this period. It's a period in which he cannot really feed his family of five children now and his wife Anna. Um, The only income he has is from oratory out on the circuit where he gets paid some of the time, and the proceeds from his newspaper, which uh, was never, frankly, uh, in the black. It was always in the red and without a great deal of help from Garrett Smith and his uh, comrade, Julia Griffiths, who helped him on the paper. Uh, that paper would have, would not have survived. But this is the the fruitful period. He's in his 30s. When well, he begins to have whole new ideas, as, as Noel was pointing out, about the possible uses of violence. He never really was a very good Garrisonian, non-resistant, or pacifist. Most former slaves weren't because they had experienced the, the, the violence, the physical and psychological violence of slavery. And he comes out especially for possible uses of violence— in the wake of uh, the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which led to all sorts of fugitive slave rescues, some of which Douglass participated in himself. He also changes, uh, transforms from a Garrisonian into a believer in political parties, a believer in, in organizing politically to change the law, uh, to, uh, to influence government, and, and not... Merely to approach anti-slavery from the perspective of what then was known as moral suasion, Douglas, like like a growing number of abolitionists and especially black abolitionists, though not all of them, came to see that if slavery was ever to truly be defeated and eliminated in America, it's going to have to come through law, through politics, through the political structure somehow, and this is crucial to understand. Because Douglas hoped in the 1850s for some kind of logic of violence, if it were possible that would threaten slavery. Because he, he, like others, came to to run out of options. He came to see that there really weren't many options left. If slavery couldn't be defeated within law and within po- politics, then the only option left for African-Americans and their allies would be some kind of revolution. But in the 1850s, Douglas becomes a very different kind of abolitionist. He becomes a pragmatist, a kind of radical pragmatist. He's willing to think about violence. He certainly is willing to think about politics and joins it as best he can. And he adopts this anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. He is looking for political solutions, hopefully not bloody, bloody if necessary, um, throughout the decade of the 1850s. And what Douglas Douglass' fondest hope by the mid-1850s, and certainly in the wake of the Dred Scott case, was some kind of breakup of the American political system, maybe the Union itself, some kind of great crisis that would force the federal government in some way to put pressure on slavery, if not even to somehow make war upon slavery. That was his fondest hope. He did not know in any precise way how that was going to come about. He wasn't any better at predicting these things than anybody else. But secession when it came and the breakup of the Union um, was the answer to a to a very strained,
0: difficult kind of dream. Wow. Uh, Thank you so much for that. Uh, Noelle, tell us more about this extraordinary evolution before the war from a radical to a radical pragmatist who believes in politics. Tell us about Douglas's response to the Dred Scott decision and his response to the coming of the Civil War.
2: Well, you know, I think when we look at the Dred Scott case, um it's very understandable for both free and enslaved blacks when um dred scott uh when you know uh chief justice taney Ch- Ch- says that um they are so far inferior they had no rights to which the white man was bound to respect that is a major slap in the face right that that is an insult to who you are your status and it seems in many cases, that the Fugitive Slave Law, 1850, will be held up and there is no hope. And Douglas really does come back and says, hey, wait a minute, yes, okay, this isn't good, uh, we're not okay with this, but um, there is some hope in this act and, and what, uh, what can happen that there is the possibility then of us pushing forward, um, that there's a certain sense that the slavery needed to be overthrown. And so I think what's interesting about Douglass during this time period is that um, we have a firm basis of anti-slavery in operation, is what he says. And um, regardless of who's giving this lying decision, he's very hopeful that this this idea will get turned around. But he also has to deal with the realities of the time. I, I don't want to paint Douglas as someone who's not, you know, dealing with the realities, and for a period of his own life, had to deal with the real threat of his freedom being taken away from him, and the possibility of of being reenslaved. And we continue to see that um, Lincoln, you know, is is another factor, you know, um, for Douglas as part of this pragmatic abolitionist. There, he goes back and forth about his support of Lincoln, and and does. Is Lincoln the best thing for the country? No, he'll keep slavery um, up, and he, he has some very uh, interesting insults that he writes uh, about Lincoln. I, I really feel that like nobody does an insult a written insult better than Frederick Douglass in the nineteenth <laughs> century. He just has, he just got this wonderful rhetorical device that he just employs, and and it's it's Get away with graceful. Words. Yeah, wonderful way with words, graceful, eloquent, and right to the point. Um, but then he says, okay, but maybe there is a promise in Lincoln. Um, You know, so it it, it goes back and forth. Um, And I think that it's important to recognize that during this time period, what we're seeing is Douglas isn't inconsistent, but like the rest of us, as we look at the different political situations we're in, as we get new information, we're reassessing our situation. We're reassessing our political activism, we're reassessing our strategy, what is the best way, because ultimately the goal is to end slavery, and how we do that is dependent on the political climate, and we have to, I think we sometimes forget the relay of communication and information, Um, so that's what we're seeing in his pragmatism, in his writings, in his speech, he's constantly reassessing the the situation, and as new information is available, he says, okay, this is a tactic, but always consistent. In that, particularly post 1851, is the idea of the Constitution is our ticket. This is the way out of the situation, and we just have to figure out how we're employing that and what it, what's the means for that. that, that,
1: that Could I just add on that oh, I just want to add on the on the Dred Scott turning point real real quickly. That it is huge. It is Noel is saying. Um, Douglas had a way in those years of whether it was an editorial in his newspaper or a speech out on the road of feeling a kind of responsibility of hope. He he he, he kind of he seemed to exude this sense of duty of hope, and I think that's actually what I end up calling it in the book. Uh, but in the immediate wake of Dred Scott, he didn't have it that duty of hope fell right by the way. I mean, the speech he makes right after Dred Scott, the decision is announced, is quite despairing. He doesn't know how to fashion hope now because he realizes and said as much that uh, African Americans now, in the wake of the Dred Scott case, live in the land of the Dred Scott decision, which means you have no future. Now, on the other hand, as Noel was suggesting, he, went on the ro- well, he was always on the road. We're talking about an itinerant lecturer who did three- and four-month lecture tours at a time. He, he took this as an inspiration to the road again and went out with, uh, if anything, a more radical message about how American politics has to move toward a politics of abolition. He would often though in 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 late fifty seven and into fifty eight and fifty nine speeches, he would often trot out that line, I think it's from Matthew, where he would say, But now I, I walk by faith and not by sight which is a way of saying uh you know, we still have faith in things like the natural rights tradition, we still have faith in things like the creeds of the Declaration of Independence. But faith in the country, he's not so sure of. But but again, it's why the apparent radicalization or to some extent radicalization of the Republican Party was for him a source of hope. Uh, he only becomes aware of Lincoln in uh, from the Lincoln-Douglas debates in 1858, uh, and then increasingly aware of Lincoln, of course, when he runs for president in 1860. But yes, at first... Uh, Douglas's problem with the Republican Party is whether to believe in it, whether to believe that uh, free soilism uh, or uh, the freedom national uh, um, approach of the Republicans, the idea that that they would cordon off slavery in the West and somehow over a long period of time snuff it out uh, surrounding slavery uh, rather than killing it. Um, because of constitutional reasons, the, uh, the argument was that the federal government uh, didn't have the power to end slavery within the states because of the Fifth Amendment, because slaves were property. And the, the issue was always, how do you trust this? How do you how do you get behind this kind of seemingly halfway politics? But this kind of halfway was new and better than no way. And uh, he'll do the same thing in 1860. He'll he'll work for Lincoln. He'll try to campaign for Lincoln if the Republicans will let him, um, and uh, and just hope that. In fact, he he will say that that uh, what got elected in 1860 was an anti-slavery tendency. <laughs> he called he called Lincoln and the Republicans an anti-slavery tendency. And of course, that tendency was better than than nothing at all. But also, we need to remember that nobody knows in the 1850s where this story is ending or going. Uh, It's an incredibly turbulent time. Uh, It's a time of great fear, political fear. Uh, We think we're polarized today. Uh, That was polarization. (laughs) And it was polarization that split the parties apart, destroyed one party, gave birth to a new one. Uh, and ended up with a presidential election in 1860 that's, uh, that's a four-way election. Uh, and, of course, ends up with a president who only got 40% of the vote. Uh, but that very kind of great polarization and division and then even breakup was Douglass' fondest hope. I'm not giving him credit for having, you know, the prescience of predicting the war and all that. Lots of people feared and... Predicted this kind of breakup, but it it is what he had hoped for because he came to believe that by sheer persuasion, you are never going to defeat this system because slavery was so powerful economically and politically.
0: Uh, many thanks for that, Noel. If I could ask, what you you talk in your uh, dissertation so powerfully about uh, once Douglas converted to political abolition, he embraced the ideals of the Constitution and advocated for their universal application. And after the war, he criticized the claim that emancipation came only by military necessity and said the war for Union came to execute the moral and humane judgment of the nation. It was an instrument of higher power itself. So tell us about his position during the Civil War. Did did he say that slavery violated natural law, the Constitution, and, and what were his activities uh, during the war itself?
2: Well, I, I think it's important to know that— um from really the beginning, there's an idea that he says that uh, slavery violates, what's the phrase, I think, celestial law. And celestial law is more powerful than any man's law. And so he sees that this is uh, universal evil, right? So it must be eradicated, must be dealt with in what manner and what may is most effective um, is really the question. And during the war, you know, you know, once things break out, he's, He's very active um, in, in what's happening in the war. Um, he uh, becomes a recruiter for uh, the um, United States Colored Troops, African American um, Civil War uh, follower uh, soldiers, um, and even two of his sons uh, participate in the war. He was even trying to um, get a position. Uh, so that he could serve as well. Ultimately, that did not happen um, for him. But what he was able to do was he had a speech where he calls men of color to arms, where he encourages African-American men uh, to enlist, to join the effort, because the war, whether men call it so or not, um, is a war for our freedom. Let's get involved. Now, that's not to say that a whole lot of people need to African-Americans are very much aware of what's at stake, um, what can happen if the Confederacy uh, wins, and so there are people who are organizing and are practicing militia maneuvers as early as when South Carolina says that they're even talking about uh, seceding from the Union. Uh, But there was a need to get more numbers, and he wanted people there, and as, you know, there are these different battles and things are, are happening, Douglas remains a fervent supporter of the troops, when there's issues with their pay, he's a fervent person. who's going forward to say, "Hey, listen, they need to be paid. Uh, they also need to be paid on par with the white troops." That doesn't really happen, but he he sees this moment as a moment of equity, a moment to really not only start fresh, but to address the growth uh, inequalities uh, that are happening within the country, um, and and that's really how we see him. The the Emancipation Proclamation is a moment of great hope across the country. Um, you know, people are literally waiting to hear uh, whether or not Lincoln is going to fulfill his promise that he issued September of 1863. Is he going to sign is Isn't he going to sign it? Um, David does this great talk when he's with his... Uh, teachers in his summer seminars about that moment and what that is. Uh, Douglas is part of those moments. So the war for him, like many African Americans, is literally life or death, your future or something else. And so he's incredibly invested in what's happening and and how this country is going to move forward.
0: Thanks so much for that. David, just picking up from emancipation, you write about how after emancipation, Douglas hoped he'd never have to attack Lincoln again, but in June 1864, he rebuked the, pres- the president, uh, said it was a swindle that the federal government was, was basically dragging its feet, and he chastised uh, Lincoln for not signing the Wade-Davis Bill, which uh, was the radical restruction plan, which would require a majority of voters in Confederate states as opposed to 10%. So tell us about how, as the war is ending, he's already criticizing Lincoln and the Republicans for being too soft on Reconstruction.
1: Well, his relationship with Lincoln is uh, is very complicated and changing, and it also shows us the sheer desperate volatility of wartime. Uh, those comments in, the, in uh, as you said, June of '64 are in the moment when Lincoln is very vulnerable. Um, there's still a movement to possibly dump him from the Republican ticket and replace him with John Fremont again. Douglas flirted for a while with joining that dump Lincoln movement, though in the end chose not to. Uh, the war has not quite fallen into total stalemate at the time he says that passage, but it does by July, and it becomes the overland campaign in Virginia and the siege of Petersburg and the terrible, horrendous casualties of that summer. Plus, the war is in stalemate in Georgia with Sherman's armies before Atlanta, and the war is in stalemate in the Shenandoah Valley, and it's not clear that this has gone going and moving toward any kind of union victory for certain. So, Douglas's uh, political volatility kicks in, and he wants the Republican Party to, to be more radical, to to stand up for what it's already announced, which is emancipation, more than a year earlier. But that's going to change, of course, uh, tremendously, by August and September. But I'm gonna, I want to back up just a bit here and just add one other element to this, because to understand Douglas and the war, one has to understand his uh, religious outlook, his kind of intellectual, spiritual outlook on history and on the world. He had long been a believer. Uh, Now, exactly what his religious faith was, his Christian faith, is a changing thing over time and very difficult to figure out. But what we surely know is that he came to believe in a kind of apocalyptic view of history, an Old Testament conception of history, that there were moments in history... When God or what the 19th century often called divine providence or somehow a spiritual power would enter history, tear it apart, and remake it over again, which is, of course, the great ancient story of the Hebrew prophets, the great story of the Old Testament, the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile of the people, the survival of some of them, and the return of some of them to a new promised land. Douglas is no amateur at this. He'd spent his life carefully, carefully reading the Old Testament. He was steeped in it. His storytelling was born from it. His storytelling was laced with the kind of King James language and Old Testament stories. So he sees the war as this kind of divine... If you want appointment with history and with this thing called America, and this thing called america uh so fundamentally flawed and stymied by its you know its founding steeped in slavery was now uh having God's retribution wrecked upon it, but the people had to be ready to follow that, no matter how much blood, no matter how much destruction. And Douglas became a thumping, violent war propagandist. Uh, it's one of the things that surprises people sometimes, I think, because we tend to think of Douglas as a moralist, and he was um, a man who exuded at times a certain kindness. And yet, his war propaganda is about as vicious as you'll ever read by any American. He wanted slaveholders killed. He wanted the South destroyed. And especially in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation, the war had finally become officially a war against slavery. And yet, by 64, that's still all up for grabs. And it's not clear the Lincoln administration is going to stay true to that cause. And hence, uh, he uh, he tilts there in the summer of 64 on whether to keep supporting them or not. However, Lincoln. And I'll wrap this up, but Lincoln invited Douglas to the White House in August of 64. They had met the year before when Douglas went to the White House on his own, just in effect knocked on the door and demanded to get in to protest unequal pay and discriminations in the Army. But in August 64, it's Lincoln inviting Douglas. And they sat eye to eye, and Lincoln asked Frederick Douglass to help. Organize with the army a system of funneling as many slaves as possible out of the Upper South before Election Day because Lincoln believed that he might not be a reelected because of this stalemate in the war and all the war weariness and all the casualties. And he asked Douglas to, in effect, become a kind of a new John Brown and organize this system of freeing slaves such that as many as possible would be behind union lines and in some legal definition free if McClellan and the Democrats won the fall election. And to be frank, Douglas was stunned, (laughs) partly because he wasn't sure how in the world he was ever supposed to do this. All he was told is that the Army would help him organize it. Uh, But he was saved by uh, events. Uh, he went back to Rochester, he started writing to his abolitionist friends, he started sending telegrams, he started to try to recruit these agents to help organize this system. And within uh, 10, 12 days or so of his meeting of Lincoln with Lincoln came the fall of Atlanta to Sherman, uh, which I think is September 3rd. And then shortly after that, uh, General Phil Sheridan's victories in the Shenandoah Valley came, and not to mention Admiral Farragut, uh, took Mobile Bay in the, in the late August. These were huge turning points on the battlefield in the war, which had a great effect on changing the political climate and changing the war morale across the North, and it made much more likely Lincoln's re-election. But even that was still a, um, a seemingly a cliffhanger and uh, in the fall of 64 Douglas wanted to go out and campaign for Lincoln but the republicans wouldn't let him and the reason they wouldn't let him is because the democrats at that point were running one of the most viciously racist white supremacist campaigns of american history they were painting the republican party as the you know the party of the n word the party of emancipation the party that was overturning the natural order they called Lincoln every name you could imagine, including Abraham Africanus the First. And so the Republicans were beginning to sort of run for cover. They were hiding. They were trying to, you know, not directly have to address the question of emancipation. It's the same thing happens in our politics. Uh, and Douglas was frustrated that autumn that the Republicans would not let him go out and officially campaign for Lincoln, but he certainly campaigned for him on his own, and he certainly campaigned for him uh, among free blacks in the North who could vote.
0: Remarkable story, and thank you for that. Uh, Noel, we uh, know that uh, Lincoln won the election of 64. He was assassinated in April of 65. The war ends in on June 2nd, 65, and then we have Reconstruction. So tell us about Douglas's contribution to Reconstruction. He concluded that radicalism is the popular passport to power. What was his role in shaping the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments?
2: Well, um, I think it's important for people to realize is that when the war ends, Douglas gets, okay, the fighting's over, but the fight isn't over. And so he has this great um, quote that I've referenced uh, numerous times where he says, yeah, we're no longer slaves, but we're not quite free. And that is the crux of the fight that he's um, taking up in um, the aftermath of the Civil War. So during Reconstruction, it is, how do you get those things in line to create that freedom? So 13th Amendment abolishing slavery, that's a whole fight of making sure that that happens so this can never happen again, right? Uh, But the really interesting part for me is looking at what's happening in the dynamics around the 14th and 15th amendments, particularly around the topic of suffrage, because this is where you see some very interesting splits happening um, between allies uh, in the abolition and anti-slavery movement. What we see in the Kind of a year or so after the war is these different abolition groups. A whole lot of them are like, well, slavery's over. You know, 13th Amendment's passed. We're done. Good luck, guys. Hope you do well with that, you know, new freedom status. Uh, And Douglass is not an advocate for these uh, societies dissolving, that there's still a need uh, to deal with these three million uh, or these millions of uh, enslaved people. 14th Amendment, You know, it's, okay, are we becoming African-American citizens? Are they not? This whole concept of birthright, citizenship, what are we doing with this? What is this going to look like? Um, And part of that argument, a very critical part, was this idea of suffrage. And so then there becomes a very interesting debate uh, that happens, and this is what we see uh, white supremacy rear up, where you have women like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, women I admire tremendously. But, you know, they're supporting the 13th Amendment. They've collected uh, signatures for petitions to support it. When the question of suffrage comes up, they are all in when it's universal suffrage. But then when the conversation shifts and they say, okay, well, we can only put suffrage for one group of people on the table, Is it going to be white women, or is it going to be African-American men? Then there becomes a contention, and we see this split happening between these groups of people who, for the last 20, 30 years, have been allies, have been friends, have have given each other ideas uh, to move forward their various activism. A lot of the women's movement here in this country has its ties to the abolition movement, uh, and so we see we see this tension, and when the 14th Amendment very clearly isn't going to have suffrage in it, now it's game on for the 15th Amendment. So what is going to happen? And there becomes a very vitriolic um, discourse happening between Susan B. Anthony uh, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass and others who are saying, look, right now is the time of black people, We have got to get whatever rights we can on the books because we don't know what's going to happen next. We need to do this. And these women are saying, these white women are saying, uh, we're not okay with this. And so um, Elizabeth, uh, Katie Stanton has this great quote about imagine Hans, Young Ting, Patrick, and Sambo voting for the likes of, and she mentions all these elite white women. She's saying we can't have these people voting for the interest of white women. This is where you see these dynamics split, and it becomes very clear to Douglas, regardless of the fact that these women are hurling insults to him in meetings because he was a women's rights man since 1848. He was at the Seneca Falls Convention. They are hurling all sorts of insults at him at meetings and papers. He's saying, look, I'm totally in for women's rights, but right now we've got to get African Americans represented in this country's political process while the ball is rolling, because it will stop. And then we can help you acquire uh, your rights, which I think some people have gotten a little mixed up when they look and they see that he was very pro-black um, suffrage, but there was no representation on the book for them at all in the conversation. Um, So that's that's kind of the really big piece for him, but his other big thing um, is the statement that he makes in, in a few speeches where he says, do nothing with us, in that he's saying, get out of our way, throw open the school books, give us the jobs, give us the farmland, whatever it is that we're asking for, give it to us, and then leave us alone. We don't need you burning crosses in our front yards. We don't need you um, burning down our neighborhoods. We don't need you harassing us on the street. Leave us alone. And if we fail, we'll fail, and that's on us. But guess what? We won't fail because we've demonstrated over the last uh, hundreds of years here in this country that we have the ability to contribute to this, this, this society and be a positive element in moving this country forward. So get out of our way. Let us do what we need to do and we
0: can all be okay. And yet Noel the Second Republic was thwarted by the Compromise of 1876 and by a series of Supreme Court decisions that eviscerated the promise of the Reconstruction Amendments. Tell us about Douglas's reaction to the civil rights cases decided in 1883 which struck down the Civil Rights Act of 1875 which would have guaranteed equality of public accommodations. Uh, Douglas said in the Supreme Court decision that he saw a studied purpose to degrade and stamp out the liberties of a race. if the old spirit of slavery and nothing else. Tell us more about his reaction to those decisions.
2: Well, you know, I think looking at where Douglas is by the time that we get to 1883 is really important for people to to take in mind. he moves to Washington in 1872. He still has his home in Rochester. His home in Rochester ends up being burned to the ground. He loses a lot of his personal belongings. Um, and then he becomes the head of the Freedmen's Bank, uh, which he thinks is a great thing. Uh, but then there's all this mishandling of funds and the big shutters under his presidency, And he's really held responsible. There's a Senate investigation. So Douglas is seeing the black community being devastated, and he's personally experiencing similar devastations around the same time. I might have the years a little mixed up, but his son is struggling to find work as a clerk uh, who's got newspaper experience. He's trying to find work, and he's noting that this is a problem. And if it's a problem for his son who has a very pri- privileged place not only in American society um, and in the African-American community. What else is going on? These civil rights acts are, sorry, these uh, these uh, Supreme Court decisions eviscerate things, but they're also a confirmation of things that are happening on the ground and the realities that African-Americans are living on a regular basis, Right. Um, that we're seeing folks moving westward, and initially, Douglas is like, "Hey, exodusters, don't leave. This may not be a good thing, and then stay where your numbers are concentrated." It's not until he starts really traveling in the south that he sees, "No, no, no, we're being we're being completely eviscerated." So the Supreme Court ruling, his reaction is about, you know, it. I think he's defeated in a lot of ways. I don't think we see as much of a hopefulness in Douglas that we saw before the war um, because he's just personally experiencing uh, moment after moment after moment of this systemic racism batting him down, batting his family down, and more widely the African-American community. So in some ways he's really not surprised, but I also think that this is where we see some of the frustration um, that he's experiencing um, at, at the same time period. And it's it's interesting to note that while these decisions are happening, he's still pushing this idea of the self-made man. He's still saying, yes, we can, African Americans can be successful. We can do these things. We can be part of this society. Um, but he's having an issue with the fact that the their success of white men coming at the expense of the black man and
0: it doesn't seem like it's getting any better. Wow. Uh, David, uh, your uh, further elucidation of the reaction to the civil rights cases and other Supreme Court decisions, such as the Cruikshank case, uh, does, is, does Douglas still believe that uh, the white man should do nothing to the to African-Americans? <laughs> or does he have another, another response to try to yeah. overcome the a- astonishing setback of these uh, decisions?
1: Nor brought up a do-nothing idea that uh, could be one of the most regrettable passages Douglas ever spoke, because it got so widely misinterpreted, and it still is. Um, what that comes from, and this is a complicated man, but not unlike most other black leaders of the entire 19th century, Douglas was a firm believer in self-reliance. He, he I mean how could he not be? Uh African Americans in the wake of slavery and emancipation were not merely wards of the government. Uh they were farmers by and large. And a farmer is self reliant by by his very existence. And Douglas argued over and over he argued this long before the war too, and he's hardly alone, that black people had to develop strong uh, methods of Self-reliance and their own community development, and and build their own institutions, and and in in some ways he's a he's a forerunner uh, from a different background and in a different time. He's a forerunner of Booker T. Washington on some of these issues. But Debs never stopped. And let me emphasize that never stopped believing in activist interventionist government. As a way of establishing those rights before law and protecting them, he always followed up the "do nothing" uh, dictum—that you know what what should be done with the Negro, do nothing with him, let him alone, but give him fair play and protect him. You know, uh, let it leave the army as long as you need to to protect him, because. Because he knew that, you know, racism and white supremacy would not only revive in the South, it would revive in virulent forms that perhaps had never been seen before, and he's going to be right about that. Too often, modern conservatives, let's be honest about it, including Clarence Thomas, but many, many, many others, have gone to Douglass's preachings about self-reliance and that do-nothing dictum and said he didn't believe in government and said that you know he believed in self-reliance he believed in bootstraps and you know some of the most basic uh, uh principles if you want of modern conservatism if all you do is pluck that out of context and use the words of Douglass and forget about all of his years of abolitionism and all of his advocacy that the government freed the slaves and the government tasks civil rights acts and constitutional amendments to guarantee those rights, and the government through its police action defend those rights, if you don't include that part of the story, you don't even know who Frederick Douglass was. And when it came to the, um, particularly the 1883 uh, civil rights cases, the Supreme Court decision of 83, it was absolutely devastating. Uh, partly it is the timing. I mean, this is now long in the wake of uh, our traditional end of Reconstruction, but it was that the whole cluster of of cases. Uh, I think there were five of them from all over the country. They were basic Jim Crow cases, whether it was a hotel or railroad. They were discrimination cases. And the Supreme Court, in effect, argued that none of those cases could be tried at the federal level. They could only be tried at the state level. And that the very idea in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, which for John Bingham, who wrote it, was that you were federalizing the Bill of Rights, meaning that violations of the Bill of Rights would now be adjudicated in federal courts. The Civil Rights Cases of 83, and for that matter, before that, in 76, in the Cruikshank case, The courts, as often is the case in our history, because courts are often by nature conservative, uh, those two courts, populated entirely by Republican-appointed justices, said no. Individual discrimination at the local level can only be adjudicated in state or local courts. That was like saying that that one of the greatest victories of the war on emancipation was now being, in effect, washed away. And in the wake of the 83 case in the fall of 83, Douglas gave one of those speeches, not unlike the one he gave right after the Dred Scott case, and it must have felt like a Dred Scott moment. Because of the the 83 civil rights cases, and this is well before um, Plessy v. Ferguson, and more than a decade later, uh, was, in effect, saying almost what God's God Scott said, that black people have no rights before federal authority, before federal courts. Uh, it was devastating. And, of course, it comes now in the wake of a, an even larger history now, the uses of violence and terror in the South, which has been going on since you know the late 1860s by then, 10 and 15 years of the use of terror and violence as a nearly normal part of our politics to suppress the rights of blacks. And when you read enough of this, you sometimes wonder, how did a Douglas and for that matter the younger generation of of blacks, uh, keep any faith in America, keep any faith at that point in the victories of emancipation? Um, they had to fall back on the resources they had, which was their own skills, their own um, their own capacities, their own community building, and their own forms of faith, because the political system and now the legal system were being uh, pretty much stacked against them, uh, and the Supreme Court was helping helping it along. The irony, though, is, and this is this is this is Douglas as well douglas would 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 give a kind of jeremiatic speech about something like the eighty three court case, but then he'd go right out and campaign for the Republicans in the next election uh he He campaigned for the Republican candidate for president in every election from eighteen sixty four to the end of his life, and that is because he had no other political home uh there was no other political alternative for African-Americans. It got harder and harder to campaign for Blaine uh, 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 and others. Um, But he did it nonetheless. Every year there was a presidential election the Republicans sent him out all over the North for months at a time. Um, And he would still argue that there was still hope, that the Republican Party was still the party of Lincoln and Grant, that it was still the party of emancipation, that it was still the party of those amendments. And, to, to, you know, and at least on the books were those amendments, you know, on the books were were the story of emancipation, um, without which uh, there have been nothing to argue for. But it became harder and harder, and of course, down to the end of Douglas's life in the 90s, uh, 92, 93, 4, uh the big new issue, of course, became lynching, and... Douglas leaves the scene uh in late ninety four and, and died of course in very early eighteen ninety five, but the last great speech of his life goes by different titles, but it's usually called The Lessons of the Hour. Sometimes it was called Why the Negro is Lynched. But that speech was an embittered analysis, and I, I emphasize analysis. It was a careful kind of historical rendering of why lynching was happening and why and how white America was creating and inventing these uh, legal and moral fictions, or he called them excuses, for why lynching was happening in America. And uh, it's a remarkable sort of uh, public ending for him that he goes out with this uh, this uh, brilliant, Critique of why lynching was happening. Not very many historical analyses ever since have improved a great deal on what Douglas argued in that speech. I mean, historians know a lot more about it, and their works are much more granular and so on. But he nailed it as to why Americans were engaging in lynching. Uh, they continually, he argued, needed a new excuse, a heightened kind of excuse. To keep black people subordinated, uh, to keep black people out of the political and civil order, and now they had gone to the ultimate, um, which was vigilante murder.
0: Thank you for that, Noel. I'm going to ask you for your final thoughts on Douglas's last decade. Uh, as as David said, he died in 18. 18- Ninety-five, A year before Plessy versus Ferguson, according to the New York Times obituary, the morning of his death, he was addressing the Women's National Suffrage Association and was escorted to the podium by Susan B. Anthony. And then he died later that day. But what were his other activities in that tragic decade of the growth of Jim Crow and the rollback of Reconstruction? And what was his attitude toward those developments?
2: You know, uh, in the last decade of his life, Douglas really becomes the informal leader of Black America. Um, he's a trustee at uh, the Great Howard University. Not that I'm biased or anything, <laughs> <laughs> um, but but he's a trustee at Howard. He's known for hosting Howard University students at his home on Cedar Hill. Uh, he is still talking about issues, but it's. It's different than the beginning portion of his career. beginning portion of his career, he's this radical, young upstart, right? And now he's the elder statesman, if you will. Um, And he has the ability now to command attention and respect in in a lot of different ways, but he also finds himself at odds with the younger generation. Uh, You know, in 1892, the Columbia Exposition World Fair was in Chicago, and they were not allowing... African Americans to participate, they had one day. Uh, and Douglas wasn't necessarily uh, supportive of it, but there is a young group of uh, African Americans led by a very feisty Ida B. Wells, who was writing about, you know, why, is, uh, why are black people not included in the, the Columbia Exposition? And, you know, we should not... We can't be on the side or a day. We have to be fully incorporate it, and he's like, you know, I get it, but we also need to figure out how we can be pragmatic, and so there's a little bit of friction, but I think in, uh, and he also writes his final uh, autobiography twice, um, and so you see a man who is very reflective of his moments. He served as the uh, U.S. minister to Haiti. Um, he served as the recorder of deeds for Washington, D.C., so he has had these government positions, but there is a step back and he's becoming very conscious of his overall legacy. So uh, in the last years of his life, he and his wife, Helen Pitts Douglas, sit down and talk about, okay, how are we establishing your legacy? And that is how Cedar Hill, this home in Anacostia, is really preserved because they went to Mount Vernon and they said, we need to make your home a Mount Vernon for the, the uh, African-American community. Uh, and when he passes away, she starts that, and that's how that home was preserved. So I think that as we look at Douglas in this last decade, it's almost like succession planning, if you will. He's continued to fight and advocate, but he's also uh, in contact with the younger generation and helping segue for them to step up. And I think that, truthfully, the person who... Best represents his legacy out of that group that's right after him is Ida B. Wells. She gets it, she has the fire, she has the enthusiasm, she has the passion, and she gets to the depth of the lynching crisis before anybody else and even made Douglas aware of it. And he talks about that in one of her first publications uh, that he wrote the Ford. Um, so I think that when we look at his legacy, we tend to think of black men like Du Bois and Booker T. Washington and others. But I would argue that the person immediately of the generation succeeding Frederick Douglass who embodied his ideas and kept pushing the needle forward was Ida B. Wells.
0: Wow. Thank you so much for that absolutely remarkable discussion. Um, although I'm loath to and as Lincoln said in his inaugural address, we must part as no, – we must not part as enemies. We'll part, we'll part as friends. And I know our listeners are grateful for you for educating us so well. Thank you so much, Noel Trent and David Blight, for an unforgettable discussion of an American hero, constitutional visionary, and as David calls him, prophet of freedom. Uh, You have with great honor inaugurated our series on Civil War and Reconstruction Heroes, which will continue throughout the month. We the People listeners, please tell us, tell me uh, what you think of these discussions, what your reactions are. And if you'd like further reading, then uh, write in and our great podcast team will give you recommendations. There's so much to learn, we the people friends, about the Civil War, Reconstruction, and the constitutional battle for equality And David Blight and Noel Trent, thank you so much for having inspired us to learn. David, Noelle, thank you so much for joining. Thank you.
2: Thank
1: you, Jeffrey. It's my pleasure.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and Apoorva Krishnan, who's here with us this summer, and we're so honored to have you, Apoorva. very glad uh, that you're a member of the Constitutional Content Team. Dear friends, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. You just heard that amazing conversation with David Blight and Noel Trent, which educated all of us so deeply. And in order to keep that education going, we need your support. We need you to engage and become members and supporters of the National Constitution Center uh, so that the crucially important lifelong learning that we make possible will continue for generations to come. So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast and the great Civil War and Reconstruction podcast series that you're about to hear all month. Visit ConstitutionCenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.